This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. I appreciate you so much for joining us this week. This week, we have episode 189, which is the coronation of the sun in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Now, in our previous two episodes, we began looking at the book of Hebrews and the ways in which it portrayed God and Jesus Christ. We demonstrated that the two were distinct heroes in the narrative while interacting with one another in various ways that highlighted their individual roles. We also explored the evidence for Jesus being depicted in terms of wisdom Christology in the opening three verses, offering evidence that has persuaded the vast majority of commentators that the answer is indeed, yes, Jesus is depicted in terms of God's wisdom. In this week's episode, we will begin looking at the various Old Testament passages cited in order to portray Jesus as greater than the angels, that is, the heavenly messengers. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, two passages are cited in order to argue this proposition. Both of these passages use begetting language of the Son by the Father. Many biblical Unitarians, eager to stress the fact that Jesus was brought into existence at his birth, have lashed on to this language in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, the language of God begetting a son, or God becoming the father of a son. And these interpreters have suggested that the author of Hebrews is also referring to the coming into existence of Jesus at his birth with these two Old Testament citations. Other biblical Unitarians have noted that the phrase, Son of God, functioned also as a title for the Messianic King. And these interpreters have suggested that Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 could be referring to Jesus' baptism or to Jesus' resurrection slash exaltation to heaven. What is the purpose of the citation in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5? How much of the original meaning of these Old Testament verses cited carry over into the New Testament? Do the New Testament writers have different ways in which these Old Testament passages were understood? Does the author of Hebrews only have one meaning in mind when he addresses Jesus as the Son? Or could the author refer to both Jesus' relationship to the Father as well as his title as the Messianic King? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the context of the argument in Hebrews chapter 1. 
So we have to read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 in its context in the argument that the author is giving. So I'm going to back up a few verses, and I'm going to start in verse 3. So Hebrews chapter 1, and verse 3, starts off by saying, When he, Jesus, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And so we can see in the context, in verse 3, that Jesus made purification of sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus became much greater than the angels. And Jesus inherited a more excellent name than they. But at the beginning of verse 5, the subject, for to which of the angels did he ever say, that subject clearly changes to God. Jesus is not the one that is calling someone else the son. And Jesus is not the one that's saying, I will be the father to him. So it's clear that the speaker there, in the quotations of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, is the Father. It's the only true God. I think that's pretty obvious. Now, the two passages that are cited are Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. Arguably, two of the most important and influential passages in all of the Hebrew Bible. So we saw in the context, after making purification of sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. And this, having Jesus being set down at the right hand of God, would initially point us in the direction of Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. I think that's a natural direction that we can initially start looking toward. Furthermore, the following participle, where Jesus, having become creator this heiress participle, seems to suggest the promotion of Jesus' status and rank that we would come to expect with Jesus' post-resurrection exaltation. Now, chapter 1, verse 4 also employs the verb to inherit. And this verb is in the Greek perfect tense, which indicates the fact that Jesus has inherited a more excellent name than the angels in the past, and the effects of that inheritance are still in effect right now in the present. That's how the perfect tense of the Greek verb functions. Jesus has inherited something in the past, and he still inherits that name and possesses that name in the present. So in other words, the present that the author of Hebrews is describing is situated in light of the event of Jesus having inherited a name greater than the angels based on an event linked to his being seated at the right hand of God. Now, when we get to verse 5, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5, which offers the two quotations in order to further this particular train of thought, the sentence begins with this Greek phrase, tini gar epin tote ton angelon. And so here we have the phrase with a post-positive conjunction gar, 
which means four. So it begins with this word four. In other words, these two Old Testament quotations are unpacking the argument that has made thus far. What do I mean by this? I think that the author is saying that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. He has become greater than the angels. He has inherited a name that is greater than the angels. How is this possible? For, here are two quotations from the Old Testament that help establish this argument. So by beginning verse 5 with this word for, this post-positive conjunction, the author is unpacking and laying some groundwork and foundation in order to demonstrate the argument that Jesus has become greater than the angels at the resurrection, having received this great name. So the two quotations need to be interpreted in light of the context. They can't be removed from the context that the author has established in verses 3 through 4. Furthermore, and I think this is a really important point that often gets overlooked in the interpretations of this passage, Jesus has inherited a name, which could be understood as a title. It's a name slash title. And Jesus, having inherited this name, is related to the act of him becoming greater than the angels. It would seem that the citing of Psalm 2-7 in 2 Samuel 7-14 are offered to unpack what it means that Jesus has inherited this name slash title. So it's about time that we go and look at these quoted passages from the Old Testament. So let's move to our second point, point number two, which is Psalm 2-7 and God becoming the father of the son. So I'm going to read a good section of Psalm 2 in order to get the context of Psalm 2-7. Let's start in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, against his Christ, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So that's Psalm 2, the first eight verses. Now, what Psalm 2 is has been described by scholars as a coronation psalm. It's a coronation psalm that celebrates the coronation or the installation of a king. And so we can see this in verse 6. God says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So we have the installation of a king, the coronation of the king there. That is the time to where this happens. Now we can see in this particular psalm a variety of descriptions that are used for the king. We can see in verse 2 that the one who is distinguished from Yahweh is the anointed, the Mashiach, or it's in Greek, the Christ, 
And so this is a title. This is not a name. Of course, Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is the title. It is Jesus the King. Jesus the Anointed King. So anointed and Christ, that is a title. And of course, we see there in verse 6 that this king is God's king, my king. And then we could see in verse 7 the other title, which is son, God's son. And so we can see here that the one who is anointed, the one who is the king, is also given the title son. These are all titles. Now this psalm was originally referring to David, to King David. Okay, and so the sense to where David was son of God is something very interesting here. It seems that son of God here is a title that is given to David. And this is very important. It's very easy to see in this psalm, but it's often missed or overlooked. Notice the connection. This is very important. Notice the connection between the installation of the king in verse 6 and the reception of the title in verse 7. In verse 6, God installs the king upon Zion, that's upon earth, upon God's holy mountain, and the decree is that that king is now God's son. God has become the father of that particular son, meaning that the king has now received the official title of son of God because he has been installed as the king. That's very important. The installation of the king is closely associated with the reception of the title son of God. So there we can see why in Psalm 2, the original reference to son was a title, not a reference to a son being birthed and brought into existence by its father. And that's very important. That's what it means in Psalm 2, 7. Son of God there is a title for the anointed king. It's not about birthing sons. It's about the anointed king being installed or coronated for his position as the monarch at the time of the coronation. And at that time, the king would receive the title son of God. It's very important. So the language of God becoming his father, or today I have begotten you, is a sense of God becoming the father in the sense of this king receiving the title son of God. Now it's also important that the newly installed king, based on verses 6 through 7, becomes the heir of the nations and the heir of the ends of the earth in the following verse, Psalm 2.8. And this is really, really important because I think it's very likely that this theme of the Son of God who becomes the heir of the ends of the earth was drawn upon by the author of Hebrews because we see all of those themes in the opening verses of Hebrews. Jesus has inherited a name that is greater than the angels and then we see the quotation of Psalm 2.7. In Psalm 2.7, the passage that follows it is about the Son of God becoming the heir. So I think that's not an accident. I think that is quite intentional. Let's move and look at our next quotation, which is our third point. Point number three, which is 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, and God becoming the Father of the Son. So let's read this passage, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 15. And I need to kind of give the context so that we can make sense of to whom these various pronouns are referring. So in this context, we have God, the true God, 
who is speaking through a prophet. This prophet is Nathan, Nathan the spokesman, the prophet of God. Nathan is speaking to David. David is the king, and they are speaking about somebody else. They're speaking about David's son, the descendant that is going to come from David. So we have God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David about David's son. And David's son here is going to be Solomon. So let's read the passage, starting in verse 12. When your days are complete, when your days, David, are complete, and you, David, lie down with your fathers, I, God, will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. That's 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 15. And it's verse 14 in the midst of that, that the author of Hebrews is citing in reference to Jesus, where it says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Now, it's clear in the original context that the son here is a reference to Solomon, which is the descendant of David. Now, 2 Samuel 7 is expanded in 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11 through 14, which has a fuller messianic sense. And actually, in 1 Chronicles 17, the reference to the son being corrected is actually removed because it's clear that this passage has a longer view than just simply Solomon, which was the original referent in 2 Samuel 7, but has a much longer view because of the son that is going to have a dynasty and a throne and a kingdom forever, and that was viewed and interpreted messianically. But it's clear here that Solomon, in at least 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, was to be the son of God. So I don't think that son of God here is a reference to Solomon's birth in the sense that God was his father and Solomon was the son. It seems that this, like Psalm 2-7, is using son of God as a title, a title that is given to the new king, who is the son of David. Remember that the context here has the son of God who is promised a house, which is a dynasty, a throne, and a kingdom. So these are clearly royal overtones given to someone who is son of God, and we know the son of God is a royal title. Now the timing of Solomon receiving the title son of God is not stated in this passage. Remember it was stated in Psalm 2-7 as being linked with the installation of the king on Zion, God's holy mountain, but it's not listed, the timing is not listed here in 2 Samuel 7. But it is clear that Solomon wasn't installed as the anointed king until David was no longer serving in that role. So the title, Son of God, likely was given at Solomon's installation as king. That's very important. Okay, so now that we've got those passages taken care of, let's move back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, with that understanding, and try to make sense of what the author is doing with these passages. Let's move us to our fourth and final point, possible interpretations 
of the two Old Testament passages in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. So the first option is that the author of Hebrews is citing Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14 to refer to the birth of Jesus, namely the act of God literally becoming the father of Jesus as the son at Jesus' birth, at the moment of Jesus' coming into existence. That is one possible interpretation that biblical Unitarians have taken. Let's look at this interpretation. Well, neither Psalm 2-7 nor 2 Samuel 7-14 originally referred to the birth of a son in the literal sense. They were both passages that seemed to talk about coronation or the installation of the king to where son was actually a title. Now, it's certainly possible that the author of Hebrews uses these passages in a brand new way that is quite different from the original meaning. And this is not uncommon in the book of Hebrews. We're going to see the book of Hebrews do this with some of his citations. So I don't want to take that option off the table. However, there is really nothing in the context of Hebrews chapter 1 that points to Jesus' birth. And so it's hard to make a persuasive argument that the citing of Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14 are used in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 to refer to the beginning of Jesus as the Son at the moment of his birth. And it should be pointed out that the phrase Son in this particular interpretation would strictly have to refer to the biological descendant of God the Father, meaning Jesus is that Son despite the fact that the term Son of God in the passages cited was a reference to a title. And so that's a very important point we need to make on the birth interpretation. Let's move to the next interpretation, the suggestion that these passages are used to refer to Jesus' baptism. Now this suggestion actually has some merit. Psalm 2-7 was deliberately cited in all four gospel accounts to indicate the anointing ceremony of Jesus that took place at his baptism. At the baptism of Jesus, Psalm 2-7 is cited. Now you can't make that case with 2 Samuel 7-14 and the ways in which it was used by the other New Testament writers. 2 Samuel 7-14 is used in 2 Corinthians 6 and in Revelation 21 in some quite different ways. But certainly, Psalm 2-7 was used by the gospel writers at Jesus' baptism to indicate the moment in which Jesus was anointed for his vocation as the Messianic king. His baptism served as his anointing ceremony. So the attractiveness of this argument, that Hebrews 1-5 is referring to Jesus' baptism, is that it reads at least one of the citations, Psalm 2-7, in continuity with the way that it is used by the rest of the New Testament Gospels to refer to the anointing of Jesus for his messianic vocation at his baptism. Now the weakness of this interpretation is that there is really nothing in the context or argument of Hebrews chapter 1 that refers to Jesus' baptism. So this interpretation would not be the most obvious way that the original audience would have likely taken it. 
furthermore, the meaning of son in this particular reading of baptism would have to be understood as a title for the Messianic king. Let's move to the third interpretive option that Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 is citing these two passages to refer to Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. Now, I think this interpretation also has some merit. First of all, the context of Hebrews chapter 1, especially the verses right before Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, explicitly mentions Jesus' exaltation and enthronement at the right hand of God, citing Psalm 110 verse 1. The context also speaks of a moment when Jesus becomes greater than the angels. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 7, a little bit later, speaks of Jesus' ministry when he was made lower than the angels. So a reception of the title, Son of God, in a manner that makes Jesus greater than the angels would have to refer to a time after his earthly ministry, if in Jesus' earthly ministry he was lower than the angels. Furthermore, the two citations, Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14, are unpacking and explaining how it is that Jesus has inherited a greater name than the angels, strongly suggesting an exalted status given to Jesus at his exaltation. Moreover, Acts chapter 13, verses 33 through 34, cite Psalm 2-7 to refer to the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. So even Luke, who is the writer of Luke and Acts, is able to use Psalm 2-7 in different ways because Luke cites Psalm 2-7 in reference to the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, and Luke can cite Psalm 2-7 in regard to Jesus' resurrection in Acts chapter 13. I think it's very point that even a single New Testament author can cite an Old Testament passage and use it in two different ways without thinking that there is a contradiction. Now, the weakness of this position is that the author of Hebrews clearly understands Jesus as the Son already in Jesus' earthly ministry. In Hebrews 3, verse 6, Jesus was faithful as a son. He was already a son in his earthly ministry. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus learned obedience as a son. He was obedient as a son in his earthly ministry. And in Hebrews chapter 6, and verse 6, Jesus was crucified as the son. So Jesus was already the son prior to his resurrection and exaltation. However, there's really no reason why two things cannot be true at the same time. Let me make this point, because I don't want to be confused in regard to the way that I think the evidence is pointing. So let me be very clear. Jesus can be the biological son, that is, the descendant of God from Jesus' birth, in that Jesus is the son in the literal sense of the word, and... Jesus can inherit the title, Son of God, as the messianic title given at his exaltation. Both of these things can be true at the same time. I'm going to say that again. Jesus can be the literal Son of God from his birth, and Jesus can also receive the title, Son of God, to refer to his messianic vocation. Those are not 
mutually exclusive options. They both can be true at the same time. And for what it's worth, I actually think that the author of Hebrews is believing and teaching both of those things. And I think that the resurrection exaltation interpretation of Hebrews 1.5 is the most likely. But I'm happy to hear what my listeners think and if they have any other evidence that I have not yet considered. So in conclusion, we have observed that Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 draws upon two verses from the Old Testament in order to show how Jesus has inherited a name slash title greater than the angels in the context of his being seated at the right hand of God. The first passage cited is Psalm 2-7, which was a coronation psalm where Son of God was a title given to the anointed king upon his installation for the royal role. The second passage cited is 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, where the descendant of David, to whom is promised the dynasty, throne, and kingdom, is called Son of God. This, too, seems to be a title for the anointed king. Although the language of God becoming the father might sound like the act of a father begetting a son at the son's birth, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 is probably citing the two Old Testament passages to indicate that Jesus is displayed to be the Son of God, that is, the Messianic title, in light of his resurrection and exaltation. And importantly, the fact that Hebrews refers to Jesus with the title Son of God does not mean that Jesus cannot also be the Son in the literal sense in that God is Jesus' Father. Both can be true at the same time. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please join us next week as we look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, the ambiguities that are involved with this passage and the difficulties that it brings to the Christology of the book of Hebrews. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the important truths about God's oneness and unity and the truths of the humanity of Jesus. You may check out the episode's description for a link to donate. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith. I am your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.